Welcome to Faith Baptist Church, Great Village, where we believe in the truth of the gospel, building of community, and engaging in the mission of Christ. We hope you enjoy this week's message as our pastors share from God's Word. How are we doing, church family? Good. 34 years as a pastor at Faith Baptist Church. That's pretty cool, isn't it? You know, the average span for a pastor is somewhere around two years. I think it's under two years. Steve's been a pastor at this church longer than I've been alive. (laughs) That's my way of honoring one of the leaders at our church. (laughs) Um, I feel like I'm coming to you today on energy reserves, what I have left this week. Are you okay with my leftovers this week? Is that all right? We're going to talk about that a little bit in the sermon time, actually. But um, this has been a busy week. Uh, Elsie and I and April and Alex went to the National Convention in Niagara Falls, Ontario. And uh, from, what was it, Monday evening to Wednesday evening, we went through this conference. And I just want to give you some highlights. Um, I was going through my little notebook this morning, what really stood out to me um, From the first session, we got some reports on the province of Quebec. And if you know anything about our church association, the fellowship, they've been putting a lot of focus on the province of Quebec because it is one of the least reached provinces across Canada. Uh, The mission field is just on the other side of New Brunswick. The mission field is right here, but Quebec really needs Jesus. So uh, one of the video reports had Pastor Francois Vermette Now, you may know this or you may not, uh, Francois Vermette is one of the pastors that we've partnered with who oversees three churches in the Gaspé area. So we've partnered with them for seven years and we give him a certain amount of money per year and check in on him and support him in his ministry there in Quebec. So he was one of the very first uh, video report interviews that we saw at the conference, which I thought was pretty cool because we have a direct connection there, our church family to Quebec. Um, part of the mission in Quebec, they, they have this really cool campaign called the 10-2 campaign. Mark chapter 10 and verse 2 says, pray the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into the field. So all of these people in Quebec, church leaders in Quebec, they have alarms set on their phone. And I would encourage you to do this. 10.02 a.m. Their alarm goes off and it reminds them to take a moment to pray for laborers to be sent into the harvest fields of Quebec. Every morning at 10.02, these alarms would go off and you would hear people just stop, take a moment to pray that God would send people into Quebec to meet the needs there. People need Jesus in Quebec. Um, there were a lot of folks from Quebec at the conference. We actually did some singing in French. Last night at the Honduras night, we did some singing in Spanish. Do you realize that when we get to heaven and we're, when we're singing with the angelic hosts, it's probably not going to be in English? Have you thought about that? It's going to be a heavenly language? So it, it was just so refreshing to hear worship in French. And there was a lady up with the band who was singing in French and there were lyrics on screen. And then as the speaker got up and started speaking, 
honestly, I was kind of annoyed because it sounded like somebody was having a conversation in the back. And I wanted to turn around and say, like, we're here for the conference. What are you doing having a mini conference back there? But it turns out they had a booth at the back that was translating what the speaker was saying live into French. And a bunch of people at the conference had these headsets on so that French people from Quebec, who are part of our fellowship family, can take in the conference even though they don't know English. So that changed my perspective on what was happening at the back of the room. I think that's pretty cool. Uh, ben Porter, do you remember Ben Porter? Ben Porter and Dan Schur were here to report uh, Sunday back in the spring, in May, I think that was. So he gave a report for Fellowship International. Uh, one of the programs he talked about, young adults, you want to listen to this, was a program called Launch, which is short-term missions internships with missionaries around the world for young adults for two-month to six-month stints. I think that's a pretty cool opportunity. You should look it up. It's called Launch, and it's under Fellowship International. Uh, Fellowship just hired its first full-time staff to First Nations people groups in Canada. His name's Peter Park. You can be praying for him. Uh, this is a whole new branch of fellowship that they're starting to put some emphasis and resources into. Bashara, a gentleman who's from the Middle East, who we got to meet at our pastors and wives uh, retreat back in the spring, he has a ministry through the fellowship to the Middle East and to North Africa. And he was sharing some stories, some testimony of what God is doing through the fellowship, through our church association in the Middle East and in North Africa. So here's just some quick highlights. 11 churches have been planted through the fellowship in the Middle East and North Africa. 300 plus pastors have been trained. 252 baptisms have taken place through the fellowship in the Middle East and North Africa. That's our church association that we belong to. I think that's really cool. Uh, there was also a report given on Madagascar. Do you know that the fellowship has missionaries in Madagascar? Do you remember Cassidy last week talking about Madagascar and being part of the, the birthing process there and what she saw and experienced? The fellowship has missionaries in Madagascar who are training surgeons. I think that's pretty cool. That's our church association doing exactly what Cassidy was talking about last week. Steve Jones, the president, he got up on the first night to give a report. Uh, one of the highlights, in the last 11 years, the fellowship, through God's power and provision and resources and leading, has planted 122 churches across Canada in the last 11 years. Some of which are Open Arms, Wayfarers Church in Spryfield, other churches that we've been connected to. 122 churches across Canada. That's incredible. Sam Alberry was the keynote speaker. And you just need to write down Sam's name. You need to look up the sessions, which I think you can watch from the conference for free. Look them up and just listen to this guy. Such a fresh perspective on the whole conversation around the LGBTQ, gender dysphoria, sexual orientation of our modern culture. Such a fresh perspective. He, he engaged us biblically on what the Bible has to say about human sexuality. And the big thing that I took away is this is not a topic that we take the Bible and we beat a certain group over the head with. That's not the best approach. That doesn't persuade anybody for the cause of Christ. In fact, the conversation on sexuality in the Bible is for everybody, us included. 
We're all in the same boat when, this, when it comes to this conversation on biblical sexuality. You just need to write down his name. You need to listen to the sessions because it was so good and so refreshing. So amongst all of the teaching, all the reporting, all the praise and worship time, we had a bunch of opportunity to connect with other pastors and leaders from our region here in Atlantic Canada, but then also across Canada to fellowship, to support, to pray together. It was a really encouraging conference. So I wanna thank you as a church family for allowing us to go, for sending us, and for being part of the fellowship. Because when you give, when we have that offering time, uh, when we minister and serve and give our resources to the ministry of this local church, it's going all the way to Madagascar, to the Middle East, to plant churches, to train pastors, to see people baptized, to the mission field in Quebec. It's, it's pretty cool. It doesn't stop right here. So those were some of the exciting things from the conference for me. And on what energy and time I have left, I'd like to dig into 2 Corinthians if you want to turn there. We're going to close off our stuffed campaign this week number eight. If you've been following the discussion guide, maybe with your group, maybe with a friend, maybe to a coffee shop, if you've been going through the reading reminders, you'll know that this is the final week for the stuffed campaign. And next week is the first Sunday in Advent. Can you believe that? Uh, our Advent series this year, we're going to be using the GROW curriculum that our kids use in Journey Kids and that our youth use in Momentum Youth. Uh, it's all about the four angelic announcements in the Christmas story. So four weeks, four announcements, and here's the cool part. It's the same content that the kids are going to be digging into and the youth are going to be digging into. So you can talk with the kids and youth in our church about the sermon content and it's going to relate to what they're learning in Journey Kids and Momentum Youth. I think that's pretty cool and I think that speaks to our value of community, doesn't it? So we're going to start that next week. But this Sunday, we're closing off the stuffed campaign and the title for this message is, Does the Church Want My Money? There's a, there's a thought out there that all the church wants is your money. I can't tell you how many community church events I've been involved in where people walking in the door, and usually it was my job at my previous church to welcome the people as they came in. Where do I pay? How much is this? How much is it for the barbecue? Where can I give my money? Because there's an expectation that the church wants your money. Can I just encourage you? We've already taken the offering. We've already had the Honduras cake auction and given $5,020, I think it actually was. We've already been doing this Brighter Future solar campaign, and you've heard that $18,000 come in. We've talked about Angel Tree. We need those names in so that we can give to that. There's all kinds of opportunities to give. I'm not going to present another one, Okay. As we dig into 2 Corinthians, the point of this message is not to say you need to give more. I'm not introducing a new giving campaign. We're not going to take up another offering at the end of the service. So you need to understand, we're not looking for your money. In fact, if you're new, if you're visiting, if you're not part of our church family, there is no obligation to give. We don't want your money. God doesn't really need your money. Here's the title, Does the Church Want My Money? Second Corinthians, here's some context. Paul started the church in Corinth on a missionary journey. If you want to read more about that, you can read Acts chapter 8. 
The first letter that he wrote to the church in Corinth is a response to all of these issues and problems that the church was having. Can we just take a moment and understand that there are problems in the church? Because there are people in the church. And if there is a church with no problems in it, you're likely looking at a church with no people in it. If you do find a perfect church, you better not join it because then it's not going to be perfect any longer. That's another thought on the church, isn't it? That you got to have life figured out before you get up here. Oh, that pastor better not step on stage unless he has all the answers for us, right? Well, guess what? I don't. I'm trying to figure this out for myself. Actually, the nature of the gospel starts with, I'm not perfect. I'm terribly imperfect. In fact, even if I try hard, I can't clean my life up so that I am worthy to come to church. The father had to leave the house. God had to leave his throne to meet me where I was at. That's the nature of the gospel. So there are no perfect people in the church. And you don't have to be perfect in the church. Paul's hearing about all these problems in the Corinthian church. So he writes a letter aiding them in correcting these issues. And man, there were some messy, messy issues. Paul followed up the first letter with a visit to the church in Corinth. And he says it's a painful visit. Probably some tough conversations they had to have. He likely wrote them more letters. And the second letter to the Corinthians that we have in the copy of Scripture may actually be the third or fourth. But because it's the second that made it into the canon of Scripture, it's called Second Corinthians. So this is one of the other letters that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. Chapters 4 to 7 in Second Corinthians is all about how the cross turns this idea of glory and success on its head. It's like the upside down kingdom. It's like the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount. How what we really think success looks like is not at all what the cross makes success look like. And Paul gives himself as an example. Look, I've been humiliated. I've been humbled and I've sacrificed for the ministry of the church, for the gospel, for Christ himself. That's what glory and success looks like in light of the cross. Sacrifice. In chapters 8 to 9, which is where we're going to be at today in 2 Corinthians, Paul makes this financial appeal. You see, the church in Jerusalem, that early church that Steve was talking about last week, Acts chapter 2, they were in need because there was this famine. They were hungry. The community was in desperate need. So Paul was going to all these churches that he had started on his missionary journeys, and he was collecting this relief fund for the church in Jerusalem, for the community in Jerusalem as they go through this famine. So that's what chapter 8 and chapter 9 is all about. The whole city needed help. Paul is requesting relief from all the churches that he was traveling to. Let's start in chapter 8 as we dig into some of the details in the verses. Verse 1, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. There are all these other churches that have been contributing to this relief fund. Verse 2, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. I love how Paul words that. That's some interesting math, isn't it? Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in generosity. 
How does that work? That seems kind of odd, doesn't it? How do you do that? How in extreme poverty do you have abundance of joy that leads to overflowing generosity? This is the nature of these churches and their gift to the relief fund. Look at verse 3. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and then beyond their means of their own accord. That, that phrase, their own accord, that's an important one that we're going to dig into. Dig into. Steve pointed out last week that when the early church was distributing funds, selling land, houses, distributing that to any who had need, so there was no more need among them, they owned it while they had it. It was their choice to give it or not to give. It was of their own accord. Look at verse 4, chapter 8. These churches, Paul is saying, were begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. That's interesting. Has somebody ever offered to pay for something or give you a gift and you respond like, oh, no, no, I couldn't. No, you don't need to pay. No, you've done so much. No, you don't need to do anymore. And their response is, don't rob my blessing. Don't steal my blessing. Don't take my blessing. Have you heard that? This is what these churches were saying. Don't let us miss out on the opportunity to give. In fact, the language is pretty clear. The churches were begging Paul earnestly to be a part of this financial relief effort. I don't want to miss the opportunity to give. Is that what our generosity looks like? I would just hate to miss the opportunity to give. Verse 5. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. So before they gave their financial gift to Paul, who did they give themselves to first? God, to the Lord. Do you see the sequence? They gave their whole selves to God and then they gave their offering to the relief fund of the church in Jerusalem who was facing this famine. They gave themselves to God first, and then their generosity flowed from that place. Generosity is an aspect of our discipleship, of our Christian walk, of our sanctification. When we trust Jesus Christ as our Savior, we are in turn saying, everything I have is yours. You are Lord of my life, you have my whole heart. It's all yours, God. I surrender all. So then God has the ultimate say in what we do with what we have because we've already surrendered it all to him. It would be so odd to try and say to Jesus, you know what, Jesus? You saved me from my sin. You've given me new life. It's all yours except for this part. Or please don't touch this part. Or please don't look behind that door. If, if I could just keep all this to myself, you can have all the rest, all the leftovers, anything that I don't want, all the bonus stuff. It's all yours, God. Well, then it's not really all God's, is it? We understand how that works. Verse 7. It's certainly an aspect of their discipleship. Look at this. As you excel in everything. What does it mean to excel? It means to move forward, to grow, to go beyond, to to develop in your discipleship, to move toward becoming more and more like Christ in sanctification. As you excel in everything, 
Becoming more like Jesus in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, in love for you. See that you excel in this act of grace also. That's generosity. And it's so critical in our discipleship. I would go so far as to say it's really difficult to refer to ourselves as Christians if we're not generous. Because generosity is at the heart of the gospel, is it not? How can we call ourselves Christians? We're benefiting from the generosity of God our Father who in love extended his son to die on the cross for us. But yet not be generous ourselves. We're not reflecting the heart of the Father. Because the heart of the Father is abundantly generous. Look at verse 8. Paul says to the church in Corinth, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine, without wax, not hypocritical, no cracks, no flaws. Paul's not forcing them to give. He's giving them an opportunity to demonstrate their genuine love. Verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, you remember reading this verse two weeks ago? Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. We call this the great exchange. Jesus gave it all for you, so that you can have everlasting abundant life because of him. Here's why generosity is an aspect of our discipleship. This is why giving is part of our worship. This is why we stand up every Sunday and say, now as a part of our worship, we're going to take up an offering. There are many ways to give. This is why we do it, because it is an aspect of our Christian walk. It's an aspect of our worship, and it reflects the heart of the Father because he gave it all for us. We're going to give it back to him. Let's turn to chapter 9. This is where we're really going to dig in, spend some time. Verse 1. Paul continues the same thought, the same relief fund, making the same request. Now it is superfluous. Everybody say superfluous. Is that how you say it? Or would you say superfluous? It's not a word we use a whole lot, is it? Superfluous means above and beyond extra, over the top, abundant. It's kind of like this whole idea of generosity. Paul is saying now it's superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints because he's already talked about it so much. Verse two, for I know your readiness of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia. All these other churches I've gone to, I've been telling them that that church in Corinth, they're ready to give, they're excited to give. Kai has been ready since last year, verse 2. And your zeal has stirred up most of them. Paul's talked to them numerous times about this relief fund and the chance that they would have to give to support the church in Jerusalem in this famine. Corinth is ready to give. They're waiting to give. They're planning to give. They're eager to give. There's this shift in, in the atmosphere because of generosity. There's this zeal, this passion being in a community of sacrificial generosity stirs other people on to be generous. When you're around generous people, you want to be more generous. It's, it's rarely the thought, oh, you know what? That person is giving, so I don't have to. We stir one another on in our generosity. This is a community thing. 
This is a community corporate aspect of our worship. Man, I tell you, when, when we got together last night, we're having fun and there's an auctioneer from the front and we're bidding on these cakes, which is ridiculous and hilarious, but all of the money is going towards this missions team that is gonna go down to Honduras and love on these kids. When we're in an atmosphere like that and $5,000 is raised to show God's love to kids in need in Honduras, you tell me that doesn't reflect the heart of the Father and call us into a deeper sense of radical community together. Community, generosity. There's this theme of planned giving. Look at verse five. Paul says, so, since you're ready to give and I've been telling you about this, so, I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you because you're ready and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. Paul's like, look, I'm not a salesman. I'm not trying to sell anything on you. I'm not trying to squeeze you for more money. If you're willing to give, if you're ready to give, we're ready to collect. We're going to send these guys to pick it up. Here's the opportunity. Now you decide what you're willing to give because it's yours while you have it. There's this this idea of planned giving. Paul gave them lots of advance notice collecting for the church in Jerusalem. He sends these other missionaries. He encourages them to be prepared in advance, not necessarily spontaneous, not spur of the moment, not what you feel like doing when the time presents itself, when the opportunity arrives. There are lots of stories in the Bible about people giving. People giving small amounts, people giving large amounts, huge sacrifices, sometimes spontaneously, like the Good Samaritan seemed to be when he he came upon that guy who was beaten and robbed and naked on the side of the road. But there's the sacrifice. There's the customary inheritance we've talked about. There's the collection box at the temple. Remember the widow who put her two mites in? There's routine, there's there's schedule, there's thought and planning and prayer that goes into it. Being ready to give if you bump into somebody who's in need, that's that's great. We should certainly do that. But that kind of also requires a plan, doesn't it? We should probably have some Tim Hortons gift cards in the center console of the car in case we bump into somebody. We are ready to give when the opportunity presents itself. Planning, preparing, budgeting. I would suggest that Even in the story of the Good Samaritan, the Good Samaritan was planning on being generous that day. He didn't know that that guy was going to be on the side of the road, beaten, bloody, bruised, naked, and robbed. But when the opportunity presented himself, he was ready because I truly believe it was his plan. It didn't matter if that was a man, woman, boy, or girl. If it was a Samaritan, an Israelite, a Jewish person, a Roman person. It didn't matter who it was or what the opportunity was because this good Samaritan, I truly believe, decided in his heart when the day began that he was going to be generous whatever the opportunity was that presented itself. Planned giving. Can I encourage you? Being emotionally responsive with your money is not always the best approach. It's kind of (laughs) like grocery shopping when you're hungry. Do you know what that's like? 
you get home and you blew the budget on a bunch of stuff that you really didn't need that's probably not healthy for you, but you wanted in the moment because you were hungry. Being emotionally responsive with your money probably isn't the best idea. You should budget. And in that budget, you should decide on how much you plan on giving. Don't wait for the opportunity. Don't wait for someone to ask. As a follower of Jesus, say yes in your budget before the opportunity presents itself so that when the opportunity comes, and let me tell you, if you're planning for it, the opportunity will come, you're ready to give. Think about it. Pray about it. Write it down before the opportunity comes. Plan for it. The principles of tithing and first fruits, they really tie in here. If you want to go further in that, grab that booklet that we've been talking about. You, your money, and your church. It's right out in the lobby on that table if you want to go further. Not having a plan is planning to fail. You've heard that, right? So plan to give, because I can guarantee you, it's less likely that you're going to actually give if you don't have a plan to give. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 6. I love how Paul does this. He makes my job so much easier on a busy week where I don't have a lot of energy, where the kids have been sick, where we've been traveling. Did I tell you that there was a medical emergency on our plane? We were flying back and somebody collapsed in the back of the plane. So we landed in Halifax as planned because it was right towards the end of the flight and there was an ambulance, there was a fire truck, there were first responders there. They told us to remain seated. I don't know how long it was, like 30 minutes that we remained on the plane as they came on and took this woman off. I really appreciate that Paul points this out this morning. <laughs> Look at verse 6. He says, the point is this. Isn't that good? Let's just pay attention to this right here. Are you ready? The point is this. If you've been sleeping for the last 15, 20 minutes, I would just encourage you to wake up for this one verse, and then you can just relax again. Look at what Paul's saying. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. We say that a lot during the offering time, don't we? God loves a cheerful giver. Have you thought about that? This is a pretty straightforward principle, isn't it? If you don't plant anything in the spring, there's nothing to harvest in the fall. You're not going to see any interest building on your investment if you never invested anything in the first place you're probably not going to have a really good lasting relationship if you never invest anything into that relationship that can produce any fruit. Doesn't it just make sense? If you don't sow the seed, there's not going to be any harvest to reap. If you do sow the seed, then there is going to be a harvest to reap. That's pretty straightforward, isn't it? This is an agrarian culture. They're all nodding their head like, yeah, we totally understand, Paul. That makes sense. Sowing sparingly. Sowing bountifully, being stingy, and being generous. I love contrast, don't you? First of all, let's talk about sowing sparingly. If that's your mindset, and I have to admit, I have struggled with this mindset. Being somebody who 
has called himself a good steward over the years, but definitely struggled with being cheap. Do you remember that story two weeks ago? If that's your mindset, then the question is, what can I spare? What can I give so that it will cost me relatively little? What can I afford? It's the approach of after everything else has been paid and cared for, what's the extra? What's the spare? What's the leftovers that I can use for being generous? The table scraps, maybe. Have you heard this slogan, junk for Jesus? (laughs) Hey, does the church have any use for... uh, Gently used furniture, I had a flood in my basement. It's going to mold in there anyway, so I'd be happy to drop it off at the church facility. You know what that means? It means generosity was not taken into account in the budget. It wasn't planned for. Just hoping there's a little bit of the extra at the end of the month that, hey, we're not really going to use this anyway, so we can give that. Uh, It's kind of like this spare tire. I I was trying to be inconspicuous when I carried this in, but (laughs) kind of hard to be inconspicuous when you're carrying a spare tire. Um, This is my spare tire out of my actual car. I don't really need it because I've already got four. There, There was a time when I did need a spare tire. Our first vehicle... We had incredible struggles with tires. I don't know what it ended up being. They thought it was like some rust on the inside of the rim. The tires would deflate over time. Then you'd be driving on the highway and it would pull really sharp to the left, you know? Uh, That happened one time on the Cobbaquid Pass. It was dark, the middle of the night. We're driving up. Well, it wasn't the middle of the night, but we used to travel later in our younger years before we had kids because we could do that. Um, But it's late at night. We're pulling up to the Cobbaquid Pass, getting ready to pay the toll. And you can hear the tires starting to go whoa, 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 and it's pulling hard to the left. So pulled over to the side of the road and then opened the trunk, empty out all the luggage because it was Christmas break or something like that. So the trunk's full. Now it's all sitting on the side of the road in the dark. And then you pull out your car mats and you lay on the ground next to the car. All the traffic's whizzing by your head as you're trying to change into the spare tire. I got to tell you, I got pretty good at using this spare tire. That little jack and uh, ratchet set, I got pretty quick at that. I was going to send an application to NASCAR or something like that, but I can't tell you how many times we used it. I don't think this is stretching it. I think we used the spare tire like six or seven times. It was ridiculous. It got to the point where I would joke with people, I think there's more miles on our spare tire than there is on our actual tires. But the thing about a spare tire is it's not a substitute for an actual tire. Its use is restricted and limited. It's just a reserve. It's just a spare. I think the rating for most spare tires is what, like 80 kilometers? I'm pretty sure I got like a thousand on that first spare tire for our first car. It felt like we were always running it. But a spare tire is a reserve. It's not to be used to replace an actual tire. But I'm not going to use it. Hopefully not. You never hope that you have to use the spare, right? Just leave it in the trunk. Hope I never have to touch it. 
They're not a substitute for a real tire. Sowing sparingly. I don't want a spare tire kind of generosity. One that is limited and infrequent and restricted to a certain amount of kilometers. And one that I hope I never have to use. One that's for emergencies only. One that I hold in the reserve just in case I ever need it. I, d I don't want a generosity that I have to hold on to hidden in the trunk like a spare tire. Do you? Can God use the spare? Sure, God can use the spare. Can he use the little bit extra at the end of the month? Sure, he can use the little bit extra at the end of the month. Can, does God need your money? Can Jesus feed 5,000 with the little boy's lunch? Can God use the widow's two mites? Can God take out a giant with a little boy's sling and stone? Can God take out a vast army with Gideon's 300 leftover men? If little is much when God is in it, then why would we give generously? Does, does God really need my money? Does he want my money? Why not just give the bit of extra that doesn't really cost us anything, that we're not really hoping to use anyway? The bit that's just taking up space in our trunk. Sowing generously. Not sparing the seed. Because seed was meant to be sown. Do you realize that? Seed doesn't do you a whole lot of good when it's tucked in an envelope in the drawer. Seed was meant to be sown. Spare tires aren't really meant to be used, but seed is meant to be planted. So why be generous? So there's this idea of blessing and reward that we really have to speak to in this passage. Is this why we should give? For what we can get in return? There's a lot of prosperity preachers in this whole modern health and wealth gospel movement that would say a hearty amen. If you give, then God will give it back to you. If you give X amount of dollars from your bank account, here's what God is going to pour back into your bank account. If you do this for God, then God will bestow on you such favors so that your personal wealth and health will increase however much. But there's certainly an idea of blessing and reward in this passage, isn't there? Is that how we interpret these verses? Why should we be generous? Is it just an added reward? Are we only giving because we expect something in return? I think that's a very narrow view of the abundance of God. Because it's not about the stuff. Have you heard that enough over the last eight weeks? It's not about the stuff. More stuff will never fill the void, i.e. week two. If you're doing it so that you can get more, that's never going to satisfy. There's more than meets the eye. There's a spiritual realm that is so much more valuable than the stuff will ever be. It's not about the stuff. The reaping that Paul is referring to is not necessarily personal financial gain. There is so much more at stake than the bank account. Let me read you some verses that tie in with this theme. Proverbs 11.24, they're not going to be on screen, just, just take a moment and listen to these. Proverbs 11.24, one gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Amen, that sounds like a good prosperity gospel verse right there, grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. 
wait a second. So if I grow all the richer, but yet that second part of the verse says, if I withhold it, I just suffer more want. Verse 25, whoever brings blessing will be enriched and the one who waters will himself be watered. There's this aspect of what you pour out is what gets filled up. Proverbs 19, 17, whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord and he will reward them for what they have done. Proverbs 22, 9, whoever has a bountiful eye, a generous eye will be blessed for he shares his bread with the poor. You never see God's abundant blessing apart from sacrificial giving. Over and over and over again, you think of Elisha with the widow who said, all I have is this bit of oil and two sons to take care of. And he said, well, pour your oil into jars. And every container that was empty got filled by the oil. She was able to pay off the debts and care for her family. And it said when the final empty jar was full, the oil ran out. There's certainly blessing in being generous. I don't want to pass over this sounding like if you're generous, there's not going to be any benefit to you. Christmas season is upon us. There's so much about giving, blessing, receiving. Albert Barnes is one of my favorite Bible commentators. He's an abolitionist from back in the day. He points out four aspects of blessing and generosity. Here's four things. Number one, happiness and peace. Far more enjoyable to give than to spend or to hoard it for yourself. Have you ever listened to Dave Ramsey? He's got a lot of biblical financial advice. Uh, there's a bunch of stuff on Right Now Media you can check out, YouTube that you can check out. He's a good voice when it comes to practical biblical finances. He says, you will never have more fun with money than when you give it away. Have you known that to be true? It truly is more blessed to give than it is to receive. It's enjoyable. It really can be enjoyable. Last night was very fun. Number two, reflection. In the end, when you reflect back on it all, no one's going to say, I wish I had given less. Number three, subsequent life. God will, in some way, here and now, repay the giver. God's not going to leave you wanting. Now, it may not look like a big increase in your bank account. It may be spiritual blessings. It may be blessings in other ways. It may be relational blessings. How is God going to bless the gift and the giver alike? And fourthly, the heavenly reward. Any bit of generosity that we express in this life is going to pale in comparison to the abundant generosity that we are going to experience in heaven someday. It's good to give. Everything we have is like seed. It's, it's meant to be planted, not shoved in the drawer and left to ferment. It can't grow unless it's planted. Living generously is the most enjoyable way to give. So why give? Well, we kind of brushed over it in the verse, but it says God loves a cheerful giver. Elsewhere in the Bible, it talks about what God hates. If the Bible points out things that God hates, shouldn't we avoid them at all costs? And likewise, in contrast, if the Bible says, this is what God loves, this is the kind of person that puts a smile on God's heart, 
somebody who gives cheerfully. Shouldn't we take note of that? Is that not enough reason in and of itself to be generous? Because God loves it. My child, I love it when you give generously and cheerfully. You know what that term cheerfully is in Greek? It's hilaros. It's where we get our English term hilarious from. So next Sunday when we take up the offering, I just want to hear some crazy laughter. Okay? Do you realize it can be that enjoyable to give that when we say God loves a cheerful giver, what it actually means is hilarious. You're never going to get any more enjoyment out of this stuff than when you use it to bless and be generous sacrificially for the kingdom of God. There's no better use for your stuff in this life or the next than to be generous and sacrificial for the kingdom of God. Look at verse 8. Paul fleshes out this idea of the reward. Hopefully this helps to clarify it for you. Verse 8. God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things, at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed. Don't miss these next two words. For sowing. Not for hoarding. Not for that foolish farmer who built his barns bigger so that he can keep it for himself and eat, drink, and marry for the rest of his days. For sowing. He will increase and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way. Look at the next three words. To be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. But I don't have a lot to spare, except the spare tire here, because I don't really plan on using it. It doesn't cost me much. It just makes a little more room in the trunk, so I can give that. If that's your thought, if you don't have enough to spare, then you're totally right. You've heard that quote from Henry Ford, right? Whether a man believes he can or he can't, both are right. Who are you? Do you believe that you can give? Because God's going to meet that void, that need, because of your gift? Or do you believe you can't afford it? I have to believe that based on these verses and what I know from Scripture, God is not only able to meet your need, but he's able to renew your supply so that you can continue to be generous. And that's the key part. So that you can continue to be generous. You can't get around that in these verses. God's not blessing you so that you can hoard it for yourself or enjoy and live off all the abundance. God is blessing you so that you can continue to be generous. You can't outgive God. Try it. God invites us. Test me in this. Generosity starts with sacrifice. It doesn't start with abundance. It doesn't start with extra. It doesn't start with the spare. It starts with sacrifice. Casting the seed in the field 
And when God supplies more seed, it's for the purpose of casting it out again. There's this story in the Old Testament, 1 Kings 17. It's very similar to Elisha and the widow with the oil, but it's Elijah. And he sees this widow collecting sticks. And it's a famine, just like it was in Jerusalem, just like this relief fund from the church in Corinth and the churches in Macedonia was going to help. This widow is out collecting sticks so that she can build a fire, cook her final meal of bread, and consume it with her only son. And then her plan was, we're going to sit here and starve to death. And Elijah asked the woman, do you have some bread to spare? She explains the situation. And he says, here's God's promise to you. You go home, you make me a loaf of bread first in faith, and then use whatever leftover and spare for yourself, and God will meet your need. So that's exactly what she did. And guess what? God met her need. It never ran out. It kept supplying because she acted in faith and gave a sacrifice beyond what we can comprehend today. Her last meal for her and her son. God met her need. You cannot outgive God. He's interested in supplying your seed so that you can continue to be generous. After all, that's why we have the stuff. It's God's intention that we invest it for his kingdom. So Paul concludes this appeal, and I want to read these final four verses uh, in conclusion. I'm going to invite the band to come up as we come to the end of our service here today. 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 12 to 15. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints. This is the outcome of the relief fund that Paul is foreseeing in the future. It's not only supplying the needs of the saints, but it's also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. Verse 13. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. I love how Paul ends that. Let's just remind ourselves for one moment that God has already given you more than you could ever give away. It's his inexpressible gift of the gospel of Jesus Christ, his death and sacrifice on the cross for you. You've already been blessed far more than you can ever give out. God's already given you more than you could ever give away. And look at that flow. It's the same one that we looked at. Because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel and the generosity of your contribution. When we submit to Christ, to his gospel, and we make him the Lord of our lives, he's the Lord of our resources, our time, our talents, our schedule, our bank account. He's the Lord of it all. God, you can have it all. I surrender all. And the contribution flows out of becoming more and more like Christ in our Christian walk. It's part of our discipleship. It's a key part of our discipleship. The second thing I want to point out as we close, the Corinthians' generosity in the local church in Jerusalem was not just for the local church in Jerusalem. Did you catch that? It would overflow in many thanksgivings to God. Not just for them, but for all others also, the verse says. 
Do you think for a moment that this whole concept of Christian generosity spans not just from the Corinthian church, but also to this Jerusalem church that is in need, in the community, where the need is palpable, where people are hungry, that the relief funds that they would receive to supply their need, they're going to act in accordance with the theology that Paul is presenting here, and they're going to throw that seed forward and cast it out and support and encourage and be lovingly benevolent in the name of Jesus to their town that they're in, in Jerusalem, in the midst of that famine. It was never meant to stop at the church. It's not so that the church in Jerusalem can replenish their bank accounts. No, no, no. It's so that the church in Jerusalem can be the hands and feet of Jesus in Jerusalem. That's the whole point of this relief fund. And Paul looks into the future and he says, do you know that there are going to be many who are expressing thanks to God because that money that you sent to that church bled into the whole community and expressed the love of Jesus in tangible ways to people who are in need. It's never meant to stop with us. It's never meant to stop with the church. It's meant to show the love of God in our community. So does the church want my money? Well, the fact of the matter is, as we presented it, God already has all your money. We need to give our heart to Jesus and that includes all of our life. And this ministry of generosity is a key aspect of our discipleship. And it should be what identifies us as Christians, people who've received the generous love of God and then pass it on to others. And then being generous in and through the local church should go into the community around us and cause people to turn to God, not to the one who gave the gift, but to the one who ultimately gives the gift, the inexpressible gift, and to shift their thanks and their praise to God. That's the ministry of the church. That's the ministry of the gospel. And that's what the church has to do with your money, your time, your talents, your resources. I just want to say a moment. I, I really wasn't planning on doing this. And I hope I don't throw you under the bus, Jay. But Jay's a busy guy. He's in school. And he's leading here this morning. And I was asking him about his schoolwork. And he said, you know what? This is a super busy time in my education, in my schoolwork. Then he said, that's not what this morning's about. And I just think, man, are we willing to sacrifice our time? Are we willing to sacrifice our resources, our talents, for the God who's given it all to us. Even in the midst of a busy season, even in the midst of a schedule where schoolwork needs to be done, even in the midst of a season that is, can be so costly on the budget as we come into winter and we come into Christmas. So I promised you at the start, I'm not saying we should have another offering. I'm not asking you to give more. I just want you to sit in this truth and ask yourself, am I a cheerful giver or am I reluctant? my giving? Am I sowing generously or am I sowing sparingly in light of the fact that God has been so generous and abundant to me and that he promises to meet my need when I give sacrificially and generously so that I can continue to give and be a part of his work? I just want to leave you with those thoughts. We're going to have some folks up here up front who are ready and willing to pray with you. The band is going to close in this song. Uh, can I encourage you to stand as we pray together? 
and then we spend some time in song, in reflection, in thought, in response. Let's pray. God, I want to thank you so much for your word today. God, I pray that we wouldn't have a spare tire kind of generosity, that we're willing to give what we never planned on using, that we restrict it, that we limit it, that we just give the leftovers, the change, the spare. God, help us to plan for giving, to be generous, so that when the opportunity presents itself, we're ready and willing to show people the heart of the Father for them, that he is generous and lavish and abundant, pouring out his loving blessing on us in the face of Jesus Christ. God, thank you that you have promised to meet all of our needs. You are Jehovah Jireh. We find our, our substance and the satisfaction for our souls in you and you alone. You truly are our provider, Lord. God, help us to use the stuff for your kingdom. God, I pray that the ministry of this local church, the programs, the people, the resources, the finances, that it would all go to the furtherance of the gospel, that it would be all part of the mission of Christ, that many would turn their thanksgiving toward you and you alone for meeting them in their time of need. God, thank you for who you are today, for the gospel. It's in your name we pray. Amen.